0: Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, Tom O'Neill with us, author of Chaos. Uh, He also wrote it with Dan Pipenbring. Was I close in pronouncing his name, Tom? Dan Pipenbring. Perfect. Hey, talk about synchronicity. Listen to this. Uh, This story just handed to us. Uh, The granddaughter of a Charles Manson victim, the LaBiancas, She's 40 years old, was stabbed to death in her Colorado home. A 24-year-old man has been arrested for the murder. Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty tragic. Um, the family has had a rough time. I, uh, I heard from her sister after, after it happened, and um, I've talked to her mom a bit, but not, not since this tragedy.
0: Tom, I want to play this clip that uh, Russ Regan uh, had sent us uh, some uh, years ago before he passed on, and his wife, Cheryl, just sent it to us again today. Kind of set the scene for us first. Before I play this audition tape of Charlie Manson, uh, set the scene. He was obsessed with being a musician, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah, I actually interviewed Russ. I didn't know he passed away. That's too bad. Yeah,
0: a couple years Uh, ago.
1: Yeah, he was—I'm sorry, recently?
0: Yeah, a couple years ago he died.
1: Okay. Yeah, he was, I think, the first one to record Manson in September of 67. That's right. With uh, an engineer named Gary Stromberg for Universal. And I'm pretty sure Russ thought he was talented, Manson, and uh, had a funny story. I don't know if he told you about the beads that he was wearing.
0: No, I don't recall that. But we're going to play that clip that Russ Regan recorded. Uh, The whole tape lasted like 29 minutes. I'm just going to play a couple minutes. What you're going to hear in the beginning is Charlie Manson kind of babbling a little bit, and then he starts playing his music on a guitar. Here we go. Hi, Charlie, baby. It's Okay. Let's see. Do whatever you feel like, man. Yeah. Just groove, you know. Tell us when you're going to start, and we'll turn the machine on. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, uh, can't you just turn it on and let it go? Okay, hey, we're going to let it go right now. And then now. take out what you want, and the rest throw it away. <laughs> You should get a job making people nervous. <laughs> what was we at? <laughs> Wrestling people from the sick city,
1: but their homes down. <laughs> oh, you wanted something happy? <laughs> See, I'm trying to get something happy, man. No, don't even on. think, man. <laughs> <It was something laughs> right. I take back everything I said. <laughs> I'm just sitting here, gonna group with you for the next hour and a half. All right. About Forty-five minutes. All right. Do you want. To do? All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What was we talking about? Sick city. Yeah. Restless people from a sick city, But their homes down to make the sky look pretty.
1: well
0: that's up a, a portion of it tom <laughs> walking, my god walking, he had uh, he had he had a strange Giggle to himself, didn't he?
1: Yeah, I've never heard that tape before. That's pretty amazing. I never heard him sound vulnerable, like admitting he was nervous.
0: He, he sounded he sounded kind of innocent there with that that little laugh and stuff like that. He doesn't well, sound that's like.
1: What Russ had told me at the yeah. time he didn't see any kind of danger or violence or threat. He said they were just a bunch of happy-go-lucky kids. He did have a an odd uh, control over the girls, but he didn't see it as, as sinister. Russ said.
0: And I guess they rejected him, uh, and what did he do, flip out? Do you think that was a part of his motive?
1: Uh, Well, the official version, yes. Um, Terry Melcher, who was Doris Day's son and a record producer in his own right, who was very successful, um, he had auditioned Manson at the Spawn Ranch after meeting him once or twice and, again, this is all the official version, uh, told Manson that he thought it would be better if a documentary film were made about him and the group, and, and he was going to refer a friend of his to do it. And supposedly, that enraged Manson, and Melcher had lived in the house where Sharon Tate was killed prior, prior to her being there. And Manson chose the house, according to Willie Ossie to instill fear in its former occupant, Terry Melcher, for rejecting him. I uncovered evidence that Melcher had a very different relationship with Manson, and it extended beyond the murders, and he saw him quite extensively. And um, I have a lot of documents in the book, and and it took a long time to get access to police and sheriff's files, but that's the case I lay out among the many kind of anomalies of, of what we've always thought of as the official version Of this case, really, it falls apart under close scrutiny. How many
0: people did Manson know in the Hollywood world that, uh, you know, might have been actors and actresses that uh, we didn't know about?
1: Uh, That's debatable. I mean, the ones that have admitted it are, uh, well, Dennis Wilson before he died, Neil Young. Uh, a few other uh, kind of studio musicians and that type, but most people claimed that they had never had any encounters with them. Uh, Mama Cass Elliot was supposed to have known him. I've never been able to verify that, um, but he, he did get around quite a bit.
0: And the late Steve McQueen, the great actor, was invited to go to that house the night of the murders.
1: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> a lot of people said they were invited that night, um, and uh, didn't go for whatever reason. He was very close to uh, Sharon and Roman, and and, and J.C. Sebring, the hairstylist. Uh, I'm not sure if—I mean, there was never going to be a party that night. Uh, it was just the people who were killed who were at the house that night were the only ones there.
0: Tom, you spend a lot of investigative time in chaos talking about the prosecutor, Vincent uh, Bugliosi, and uh, you you uncovered a lot of things about some of the notes he had taken and things like that. Tell us a little bit about this. Do you think he screwed this up or he he lied about something what what happened
1: uh, i don 't think he screwed it up. I think he did exactly what he had planned to do. I make an argument in the book that he was compromised um, that he was given this job. He was a pretty much unknown deputy d a just in the office a couple years, and he was handed you know the biggest murder trial in Los Angeles history prior to OJ, and um, what the world didn't know at the time was he had uh, gotten involved with, uh, uh, he was stalking someone who he thought had fathered his child. That person happened to be um, his milkman, and he was committing crimes. He was using the DA's office to get information. He told them he was a witness and a possible suspect, and he was sending him threatening notes. All this stuff should have caused him to not only lose his job, but to be disbarred. Right, and, and right. It didn't come out until well after, you know, Buliosi was already famous and running for office. There were a couple other incidents like that. So, I, uh, he, you know, the thesis of my book is, did the murders happen because Manson just randomly picked this house? and these victims to start a race war i argue that there were a lot of other elements involved provoking manson manipulating manson all beginning in nineteen sixty seven and i i lay out the case that as soon as he was released from prison in sixty seven and went to san francisco i mean his going up there was a violation of his parole the very day he was released because he wasn't supposed to leave los angeles instead of being sent back to prison he was given a new parole officer named roger smith who was a drug researcher working at the Haight ashbury free medical clinic which was opening that summer of 67 and roger basically looked the other way as manson was committing crimes recruiting young and underage girls to his harem and uh had a very unusual relationship with Manson if you know the book uh, Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein Manson kind of modeled his commune after the the book the novel hmm. and in that book uh it's about a character who comes from Mars to kind of take over the world the way Manson wanted to and uh his protector is called Jubal And that's what Manson and the girls called Roger Smith, the federal parole officer, Jubal, because he was protecting them.
0: And the relationship is as weird as Oswald and Jack Ruby, and you mentioned Ruby in the
1: book. I do, I do, because uh, when Manson was going to the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic with the girls for them to get uh treatment you know they had stds and uh you know all kinds of some of them were pregnant but he was going there for his parole meetings with Roger and he had become Roger's only client by the end of 1967 into 1968 and this is where we get into the really crazy part of the book there was a psychiatrist there named Jolly West who some of your listeners may have heard of before he had been alleged to be part of the CIA's MK Ultra program.
0: Uh-huh, that's right.
1: And denied it until he died in nineteen ninety eight or nine. And I uncovered uh documents showing that not only was he a part of the MK Ultra program, which was a mind control program that the CIA began in nineteen fifty two, but he was the architect of it with Sidney Gottlieb, the main scientist. And I found all the letters between him and Gottlieb outlining what they were gonna do. And it kind of parallels what Manson did with his girls and what happened to the family. It's uh, Again, it's all laid out in the book. It sounds crazy just synopsizing it quickly like that.
0: Well, I was going to say, is it conceivable that the CIA could have even used Manson to take these innocent kids who had no crime records and turn them into raving murderers?
1: Yeah, I mean, the CIA was actually their ultimate objective was to create people who could be programmed to kill without any awareness that they had been programmed, or any memory of it.
0: Like Sirhan Sirhan, possibly.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the one thing we had to leave out of the book. If I, I'm thinking of doing a follow-up, and I have a couple chapters already uh, outlined on, on Sirhan, and, and the same cops, the same prosecutors in Los Angeles who investigated and, and then, you know, tried Sirhan, were then involved a year later in the Tate-LaBianca uh, case, and uh, there were a lot of parallels between the two.
0: We have been trying to get an interview with Sirhan Sirhan, uh, working with his brother Munir and uh, his uh, attorney, William Pepper. And uh, if we're successful, I want you to come with me.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I know Bill Pepper, and um, I've met with him a bunch of times, and I know other people who are trying to get Sirhan a new evidentiary hearing. And um, I, I think he definitely... I don't think he was the one who killed Robert Kennedy. I think he was in the pantry. Obviously, he shot at him, but I, I believe in the second gun theory. With theory, was, uh, ironically, Vince Bugliosi, who's known as being an anti-conspiracy person, his twenty-year project was a book debunking the John F. Kennedy conspiracy, assassination conspiracy, called "Reclaim." Right. Yeah, and uh, he tried to get. The Robert Kennedy assassination case reopened in the mid-70s, arguing that there was ample evidence of a second gunman. He never talked about that when he kind of changed his stance. I believe he was um, paying off debts his whole career for, um, you know, he was working for the man.
0: Well, something that happened between 1967 and 1969 when the murders were done to Charlie Manson, because just listening to his audition and his silly little laughs... Yeah, I mean that doesn't sound like a guy who's a murderer. And as you said, Russ Regan, you know, thought he was a okay guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of people did who met him in the beginning. A lot of people said he was inconsequential. They could never imagine him. He really transformed in under a year from this someone you wouldn't look twice at. You know, he was small, he was silly. I mean, the giggling and stuff. I have heard him talk and giggle like that before. But he transformed from that into this, like, uh, evil... Lunatic. Lunatic, yeah, in such a short amount of time. And also he learned in some way how to control the minds and actions and behavior of more than 30 people in under two years. And that's another thing. You know, when I was reading Bugliosi's book the first time, when I got the magazine assignment, I kind of got stuck on a paragraph in the epilogue where Bugliosi admits that even after he's put them all away and, you know, to prison, and they had all gotten, most of them had gotten death sentences that were later overturned by the state Supreme Court. But um, he he said the one thing we might never know is how Manson was able to learn how to get people to kill on command. He goes, and he writes this in the book, was it something he learned in prison? Mm -hmm. Or was it something he was taught? By others, it's something I think we'll never know, and that's kind of that was my starting point uh, when I started reporting this, was trying to find out what happened. And Buliosi really only gives a few pages to the first year in '67 that Manson was out of prison, when he became, you know, Charlie Manson cult leader, and that seems suspicious to me. That's why I spent a lot of time up in San Francisco interviewing people there, and going and getting archival documents and uh, reports from the medical people at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, and, and you know, and confronting Roger Smith as parole officer and David Smith, who ran the clinic.
0: Well, you uh, can tell a lot in the eyes, Tom, in the eyes of Charlie Manson after he was arrested and put in jail on some of the clips we've seen over the years. yeah, He looks like pure evil. I mean, pure evil. It doesn't look like the eyes of a guy that our friend Russ Regan would have seen.
1: Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, I interviewed him a few times, but when I interviewed him, he wasn't allowed to have visitors. You know, He was always misbehaving, so he'd be in solitary confinement, and he'd be allowed out like one night a week to do phone calls.
0: How close so, did you get to him?
1: It was phone calls. I interviewed him two or three times on the phone because okay. I wasn't allowed to visit him in person. Then five or six years later, I tried again, but he refused to talk to me because he heard some of the stuff I'd been doing. Uh, you know, he wasn't supposed to be communicating with his former followers, but he was, and they were telling him the kind of questions I was asking. So then I got some death threats from some of his handlers outside of prison. I,
0: I hear Tex Watson, who was one of the uh, true murderers in this episode, uh, became a minister, got married, had kids, got divorced, uh, had conjugal visits in prison, and... Oh, my God, but he's had 17 paroles tonight. I don't think he'll ever get
1: out. Yeah, yeah. He uh, has four children and is divorced. And Bruce Davis, another convicted Manson family member, he's also a Christian minister in prison.
0: It's amazing. Amazing indeed. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.